Welcome to the Agents of Innovation podcast, where we feature conversations with entrepreneurs, philanthropists, and artists. Welcome back to the Agents of Innovation podcast. I am your host, Francisco Gonzalez, and I want to thank you. This is now episode 51, and we are continuing to move along with some great guests. We have a great entrepreneur on this episode. We're going to interview Michael Gibson of the 1517 Fund. Michael's done a lot of different things in his life. He's worked for one of the great entrepreneurs in this country, Peter Thiel, so we're going to hear a little bit about Michael's experience working with Peter, uh, helping him teach a class out at Stanford University, but also helping with some of the initiatives he has going on. And so I really think this is going to be a great episode because in addition to sort of starting some ventures himself, Michael's going to sort of help us take a step back and talk a little bit more about entrepreneurship and philanthropy and um, what he has seen and and. and a, Across a lot of different spectrums and also in terms of the education of young people who are looking to get into entrepreneurship. So I think it's really uh, going to be great uh, to see uh, this. And then um, at the end of this episode, we're going to hear a song from The Curries. We've had The Curries on this podcast uh, before, way back, almost two years ago, to be honest. But uh, we've also featured a couple of their songs. Well, we're going to feature a very special song of theirs today called Gulf Coast Home, and I really encourage you after you hear this song at the end of this episode to go to the Curry's website, thecurriesmusic.com. That's Curry's, C-U-R-R-Y-S, so thecurriesmusic.com, and pick up and download this song. There's a donation required, but this is for a very good cause. As you know, just in the last couple months, this past October, um, Hurricane Michael damaged Florida's Forgotten Coast, and we don't want to forget about the Forgotten Coast and all the devastation that was unleashed on them by Hurricane Michael. It was a storm of historic proportions, unprecedented damage to homes, businesses, and infrastructure. And the Currys are from this area. They're from uh, the Cape Sandblast area, Port St. Joe. I've spent a lot of time in uh, St. George Island, Florida, not too far from there, and which is part of the Forgotten Coast, which also received a lot of damage. I met the Currys actually there um, a few years ago when they played a Rock by the Sea uh, charity event, and they've always been into charity events in addition to you know trying to make a living on their own, and so they actually are dedicating uh, this song of theirs, Gulf Coast Home, which is a beautiful song, and if you love the Florida Gulf Coast as much as I do, this song has a lot of meaning, and I think it's taking on special meaning now in the devastation of this horrific hurricane. Um, and uh, so a donation to, uh, uh, to on their website, thecurriesmusic.com, will give you a download to the song, and also the donations will go to help people in the region. And so uh, I think it's a very special cause, and because we are so concerned with philanthropy and, and, and hearing from many philanthropists and entrepreneurs on this uh, podcast, Agents of Innovation, I wanted to definitely uh, thank the Currys for this and recognize uh, what they're doing and also play the song um, that I downloaded uh, after my donation. So I uh, hope you will listen to it. They've given us permission to play it here on the podcast in the hopes that you will then go to their website, make a donation 
to help the victims of Hurricane Michael in the Florida Panhandle. And, uh, and let's not forget those on the Forgotten Coast. But uh, thank you again for listening to the Agents of Innovation podcast. As always, you can visit our website, agentsofinnovation.org. We uh, put a blog post up about all the different guests we have every single episode. Um, you also can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. All those links can be found on the website as well. And you can look them up on your social media accounts. And, of course, we're found on iTunes, Apple Podcast. Uh, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. So thank you again for listening to the Agents of Innovation podcast, and I hope you get a lot out of this episode and share it with others. Okay, I want to welcome to the Agents of Innovation podcast, Michael Gibson. Michael, thank you for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Francisco. Well, Michael, uh, you currently live in the San Francisco Bay Area, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. And I know you grew up in uh, Greenwich, Connecticut. Well, I really love, uh, there's a lot of probably ways to introduce you here, but the best way, I think, to introduce you to the audience is to simply read your bio from your LinkedIn profile. (laughs) Okay. So here is how Michael Gibson introduces himself. If the Rust Belt has come to define the hollowed-out industries of the Midwest, in the next 10 years, the Paper Belt will come to define the paper-based industries, from Washington, D.C. to Boston. In D.C., they print money, visas, and laws on paper. In Delaware, companies incorporate on paper. In New York City, they print media on paper. And in Boston, Harvard, and MIT, they print diplomas on paper. I am dedicated to lighting the paper belt on fire. Uh, so, Michael Gibson, we are going to have a okay. great conversation <laughs> about how you're lighting or planning to light the paper belt on fire. I know we're in this just interesting uh, moment culturally, intellectually, technologically, and you are one of the revolutionaries uh, ready to light that paper on fire. <laughs> so, um, okay. Let's let's get into this. Uh, so yeah, so- I, maybe I could uh, yeah, maybe just to like expand on that a little bit. It, it, I'm not an arsonist, but uh, <laughs> uh, what uh, you know, maybe a more concrete example of of what I mean by that trend is is something as simple as uh, like those old taxi cab medallions that you'd see in places like New York City, which were in effect printed on paper, uh, licensed from the city to operate in a certain area. And it was very uh, difficult and expensive to obtain uh, and limited in number. So, you know, taxi prices and so on reflected a, a controlled market. Um, and then and then along comes, you know, this advance on smartphones where suddenly uh, using reputation and credit cards and GPS tracking, uh, people felt safe enough to ride with strangers. And Uber and Lyft really took off, and, and it allowed people to opt out of that old system, the paper-based system, and into something new. Uh, so those are the kinds of innovations I think we're going to see more of. It's the kind that I, I, I want to work on myself, where people get to opt out of old systems and into new ones that are just demonstrably better. Uh, you know, a more radical example might be something like Bitcoin which is, uh, you know, a digital currency. Uh, you know, there's the old fiat system that people are, are free to stay in if they want to. But uh, I think the goal of the Bitcoin fanatics is, is to have uh, an alternative monetary system that 
that requires no central authority and so on, and, and they want to be able to opt into it. And so, yeah, if you go up that coast, the 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 I ninety five belt on on the east coast, you, you see a lot of these uh, industries that I think are threatened by these kinds of technologies. And probably the last one, Boston, is the one I've spent the most time on actually in in my career, which is uh, higher education and in, in the diploma. So I, I worked for Peter Thiel starting in, in 2010, and we launched uh, the Thiel Fellowship. And this was, uh, you know, the, the premise of the whole program was that it's harder to get into college than out of it. And, and, and so, uh, you know, colleges aren't really, you know, maybe an analogy is something like a sculptor versus a gem appraiser where on one model of college, you know, you, you think the school is the sculptor, it takes this stone and it carves it into some beautiful statue. Uh, or there's an alternative theory where a college is more like a gemstone appraiser. They pick up some rocks, guy looks at one and is like, oh, this is a diamond, tosses it into one pool, and then looks at another and says, oh, this is a dud, throws it in another, and actually changes nothing about the rock. Uh, and so that that was the theory uh, guiding the Teal Fellowship that they're you know college serves a different purpose than most people think, and there are a lot of talented people who could go without the diploma if we supported them. And so I, I started working on that in 2010, and I continue to do that now in in my work in venture capital where we support dropouts or people who have never been to college, people off the the, the regular tracks, and it's all in an effort to show that that piece of paper. Uh, isn't as valuable as people think. Yeah, and for those that uh, aren't aware, um, they probably don't listen to this podcast enough, but uh, Peter Thiel is the co-founder of PayPal, uh, one of the angel investors in Facebook at its beginning, a big philanthropist, and one of the ideas you know he had with this Thiel Fellowship was what you just described, right? Trying to invest yep. in, in young entrepreneurs, Perhaps the next, uh, you know, some people might like to say the next Mark Zuckerberg out there. Yeah, uh, right. Uh, but, uh, but you know, in all sorts of fields. And um, and so you've discovered uh, some of these people during the Teal Fellowship. Tell me about, so the Teal Fellowship, again, just to reiterate, it was uh, you, you invest in, you, I guess, uh, young people apply. And these are kids mostly, are they mostly just kind of coming out of high school? Right. So, yeah, we, we, we'd taken applications uh, and then filter them through a process. Uh, at the time when I was running the pro- – so I ran the, co-ran the program from 2010, its inception to 2015. It still continues. It's a, uh, it's a grant, so it's not uh, – there's no investment. It's just a pure gift of $100,000 to about 20 individuals a year. Uh, when I was co-running the program, you had to be 19 and under to apply. Uh, they they raised the age to, I believe, 22 and under now. Uh, but the one requirement is that you you can't have a college degree when you apply, or at all. Um, and 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 that continues to this day. Uh, we uh, we didn't know what we were getting into in 2010. We sort of created this uh, college-like application where we looked for GPA. SAT scores, what college you went to, uh, and, and with the thought that, you know, maybe just like achievement and smarts was the kind of thing we, we were looking for. But over the, you know, quickly, actually, after the first year and then onward, we, we, we saw that those sorts of things had no strong correlation with people's ability to start companies and just like thrive in the wild. Uh, what we noticed was like the traits that succeed out there in starting companies from scratch 
aren't book smarts, right? It's like, you know, grit, perseverance, uh, interestingly, and, and, and really hard in the, in the domain of technology, because you, you meet a lot of people who are uh, with high IQs, but low social skills. And so we had to find people who actually had both people who had the social intelligence to work with customers, uh, get their feedback on products, hire employees, raise money from investors. And so we, we have this Venn diagram that uh, had a vanishingly small number of people who, uh, who fit. Uh, but we did. We worked with a lot of great people, uh, you know, some wild, uh, crazy ideas. And, um, you know, I saw the line of madness and genius uh, for sure. Uh, some of the some of the great things we saw was in 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 our first year we received a, an application from a young woman named uh, Laura Deming. She had been admitted to MIT at 14. We met her when she was uh, just about 17, and she had been doing scientific research on how to extend the lifespan of microorganisms uh, and cells. So she she was really interested in this line of research, uh, longevity research to extend the human lifespan. Um, but she applied to the program saying she wanted to start a venture capital fund devoted to funding companies in that space. You know, a young 17-year-old woman, as gifted as she is, we thought that was crazy. Uh, so we were on the fence. We didn't know what to do in our, when we convened. And we're like, oh, but she's just so gifted. We had to take her, even though she seemed so determined on, on trying to raise money for this fund. Uh, so we did. And, and in the event, uh, she pulled it off and, and uh, she raised a fund. And um, I think it was I can't remember the amount of money, uh, small by industry standards, but still she was in business and uh, she invested across a number of companies and those companies grew and, and did well. And now she raised a second fund and uh, she's still going at it. Uh, so that was pretty incredible to see. We, uh, one of the bigger people, bigger, more famous people that came through our program, we, we discovered this young, wiry Russian man in uh, Waterloo, Canada in, in 2012. He had some ideas around education technology, but uh, we, we're, we kind of find all that to be snake oil. Um, we, but he was so smart, we encouraged him to, to keep looking for ideas and come back to us. In the next year, he had become an editor at Bitcoin Magazine, and he had he had published a white paper on how you might be how you could use the underlying technology that powers Bitcoin to enable other things on the internet, things like a what's known as a smart contract or a digital asset. So imagine like the title of a car uh, being transferred over over the internet, uh, just like money. You don't want that to be counterfeit. Uh, you want it to be authenticated when the transaction happens. You don't want double dealing, all that kind of stuff. And so this this young man had a, invented a way to do that. And uh, we helped. We gave him a hundred thousand dollar grant. We mentored him and helped him launch what became this Ethereum. Uh, I think right now that has about a twenty billion dollar market cap. It's been as high as uh, sixty uh, sixty or seventy billion. Um, it's a, uh, it, it, it's not a cryptocurrency, although it, it seems to trade as one right now. It's really meant to be the backbone of these kinds of digital assets. And then, uh, and then most recently, a couple of weeks ago in 2013, we brought another young man into the program, uh, from India. Uh, it's always hard for us to judge, uh, foreign markets. And if someone's so far away, it's hard to know how much we can help them. But, uh, Ritesh Agarwal was, uh, he had a small team together in 2013, and they had a tiny bit of traction. 
And they, went, they, they had started this idea. They had basically just tried to copy and paste Airbnb in India. Uh, Airbnb had not entered the market yet, and they thought if they, they launched there and grew first, they, they'd be able to uh, saturate the country. Uh, it, it turned out, you know, in the first, we, we brought them into the fellowship uh, and we were helping them out, and it turned out it's not so easy as copy and paste, uh, mainly because of cultural issues and also because of quality assurance with, with any of the properties. Uh, Ritesh had one of these, uh, outside of Silicon Valley, a lot of people can't stomach the the length of time it takes to grow a business. Uh, the ups and downs involved uh, can be quite volatile. And one of his angel investors didn't like this and thought, well, if this idea is taking so long, it must be because Ritesh and, and the team are committing fraud and actually not building a business. So we get this email from Ritesh. He is scared out of his mind, and, he, and he's telling us that this angel investor is going to break his legs unless Ritesh pays him back the 20K he invested. So Ritesh wanted an advance on his fellowship money to, to save his legs. And we uh, were like, oh, my God, he's in India. Well, how do we know he's not lying? <laughs> Let's get on a Skype call with him. Uh, you know, we can see, hear his story out. And, and so we did that. And, and, yeah, he persuaded us. And we're like, oh, but 20K is a lot of money. We, we advanced him 10K. He, he was happy with that and, and told it. And in the event, he was able to rustle up the other 10K to pay off this angel investor. Well, fast forward uh, five years and Ritesh really, really grew that business out. It's now more of a, it, it's a little bit like an Airbnb crossed with like a hotel management. So it's like they, they work with people and, and they have more hands-on in property management. But they just announced that they, they raised a, a, another round of capital uh, from SoftBank and, and Sequoia India. They raised a billion dollars and, and the company now is worth $5 billion. So I wonder what that angel investor <laughs> is thinking now. So we, so yeah, that was all through the Teal Fellowship over those five years. We worked with a lot of great people to launch some pretty incredible things. We saw some things fizzle and blow up, but it was, but it was quite a journey for me. Yeah. So, you know, I, I feel like from the outside, you probably had a couple missions uh, with that. Um, and one of them, obviously, is finding these young people. Uh, and I, I used the word investing earlier, which uh, mm -hmm. in the for-profit world, people would, would understand that as, you know, you're actually having an investment like a, right. uh, in them and that you're sort of making money on them. Um, but you're not. You were just giving them grants. And, yep. um, but... I think the other part of mission, you know, so you're helping these young people, but also the other mission, right, is you're, you're, you're being uh, sort of someone out there in the uh, in, in industry and culture mm. who are uh, showing that people can make it without a college education, right? I mean, yeah, that's Bill right. Gates and Mark Zuckerberg and Steve Jobs and all these people who dropped out of college yep. uh, to, to change the world, essentially, uh, with some of the products they created. And you are... You know, through through the Teal Fellowship, you all basically are showcasing all these young people, entrepreneurs, saying, "Hey, you can be an entrepreneur without college. You can change the world without college." That's right. And why are we sort of uh, worshiping uh, this sacred degree, this paper uh, diploma, if you will, mm -hmm. when we don't necessarily need to? And college is great for a lot of people, but it's not for everybody. Uh, even and some people say, well, it's not for everybody, you know, maybe working class people yeah. can afford it. But it's also not for every genius out there who maybe can't afford it or might be able to get a loan. But yeah, that's right. To, to accomplish and become a success. Right. That's exactly it. We uh, 
So uh, the, the the name of the venture capital fund I, I launched is called 1517, which refers to the year of Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation, kicking off the Protestant Reformation, uh, nailed his 95 theses to a church door. Uh, what most people don't know about that little nugget of history is that uh, what he was protesting against was that the, the Catholic Church was selling this uh, piece of paper called an indulgence. Uh, they would, uh, you know, go town to town, and 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 what this pe- piece of paper did was save your soul. You could just give the money church, you'd get a piece of paper, and they're like, all right, your soul's saved. Um, and then you could save the souls of people in your family and so on. And and the church minted a lot of money. Uh, I think even St. Peter's Basilica is even uh, was built with the funds from uh, selling these pieces of paper. Uh, so our, our analogy is that the university system is is a bit corrupt, like the the 16th century church. And uh, they're doing, you know, it, back then they were selling a piece of paper telling people it was the only way you could save your soul. And now we have this institution selling a piece of paper. It's called a diploma. They tell you it's the only way you can save your soul. And what we want to show is that, you know, it was BS then and it's BS now. <laughs> and uh, And I think... The, the group of people that we work with are pretty good role models to show that. Uh, and that's across the Teal Fellowship to now. Uh, it's interesting, you know, you mentioned some, some of the legends like uh, Gates and Jobs. Is, uh, you know, it is a puzzle, that, uh, but nevertheless a pattern that, that I, I think a lot about. And you look at Gates, Jobs, uh, people like Larry Ellison, Oracle, Dropout, Michael Dell, uh, into the nineties and two thousands, Zuckerberg, uh, in the last, by our count in the last like 10, 12 years, there are a number of companies that your listeners may know or not know, but were founded by people between the age of 18 and 23, not through the fellowship, but companies like Oculus Rift acquired by Facebook. That's a billion dollars. Uh, Stripe, the Collison brothers founded, uh, the payments company that's worth 20 billion right now. They're dropouts. Um, Snapchat, not a dropout, but founded when the, the, the founder was like 22 or 23, Dropbox. Uh, so there are a large number of tech startups over the years that have been founded by younger people. And, I, and, and you know, I didn't, they, you, you certainly don't need a degree to start a company. The question is, like, why are younger people um, doing, you know, doing this at such a high rate or, you know, such a strong success rate in terms of the size of these things? And it's a really fascinating question. I don't know the answer. You know, sometimes I, I just think it comes down to when people are younger, they've got more tolerance for risk. They can live on a couch. They can eat ramen. They don't have mortgages and pets and kids. Uh, and so maybe they can they can try things a little bit more. But but I don't know. It's an interesting question. Yeah, on the flip side of that, I feel like you see a lot of kids with college degrees. Um, maybe their parents paid for them. Maybe they went through student loans. Uh, yep. who are now unemployed or underemployed and are living at home with mom and dad at 26, 27. Oh, absolutely. So you've got, you've got this kind of, you know. Man, I, I, can't, I, I can't overemphasize how big of a problem I think this is uh, in terms of, I guess, two things. One is that our universities, we, they don't really teach skills that are – uh, that people then can use in the labor market. Not, you know, depends major to major, but most, most of the time, and especially if you're studying like me, I studied philosophy in ancient languages. That's not something that, you know, is remunerated well in the labor market necessarily. 
so I, th I think what's happening, like, and that's fine. Like, I, I, I certainly needed the time to mature and, um, and, and read and learn. But, but the problem is that since, uh, well, I guess, early 80s, the cost of college has skyrocketed. In fact, faster than the price of any other item in any category, including healthcare and housing. So I think something like uh, a 4x to 5x in real terms, the cost of tuition has has increased. Uh, you know, counting inflation, as any parent knows, they're looking at bills. Uh, I think at the top schools, it's on the order of like 70k a year now. So something on the order of $200,080 to get a four-year degree at a top private university. Uh, suddenly the thought that you might study, uh, you know, whatever you find interesting, irrespective of, of what the labor market thinks is, is a, a more tenuous decision, I think. And yet, sadly, in our, we see a large number of young people doing this. Uh, there's something on the order of $1.5 trillion, trillion in outstanding student debt. Um, I, what, I, what I fear most is the overhang of that debt and how it destroys and destroys lives and hampers dreams. So most people, they'll graduate college with something, you know, call it like 25K to 100K in debt, and they can't start the small business that they always dreamed of starting, or they can't, you know, try to become a writer or a sculptor. They can't, uh, you know, travel. Why? Well, they've got to pay off their debt, and so they end up taking safe, well-paying jobs at large firms. And there's something insidious about the way this whole system uh, entrenches the power in the in the status quo. I think this is partly why we see you know 40% of any graduating class at the top schools going into uh, careers like management consulting and, and investment banking, which I don't have anything against in and of themselves. But it's just like when when you see them hoovering up all this talent. Uh, because people just need to pay off these loans for an expensive degree that may or may not actually be adding value. Uh, it just seems really, really dangerous for our society and, and awful because it, it's corrupt to me. Yeah, no, um, there's a lot to unpack there. And I, by the way, I liked, uh, for those uh, who want to read a little bit more from you, um, you had, um, you mentioned earlier last year was the, 500-year anniversary of Martin Luther tacking those 95 theses to the church door, and you put together uh, an interesting article called The New 95, and yep. uh, I'll put this in the, <laughs> in the blog post that we do for each of the uh, episodes. I'll put a link to it so everybody can see it, and maybe in the show notes, but uh, it's pretty interesting. Uh, you, you yeah, it's a, it's, a nice, it's a nice long list of grievances against higher education, how it might improve. I get into some of the K through 12 stuff, too, because uh, our, our social life in this country is so dominated by universities that uh, even even elementary schools are sort of bending people towards that end. And uh, yeah, it's pretty fun. You know, maybe uh, may, I, I had to get to 95, so there might be some repetition there and whatnot, but, but it was pretty fun because yeah, we, we named the fund what we did without thinking that, Oh my God, the 500th anniversary is coming up. But we, we had a, uh, not a conference, but we just got a whole bunch of people together, like 400 people in our community, young makers and builders. And we had some speakers, uh, come and give talks. And, and, uh, what was kind of neat is we, we have a, uh, t-shirt maker, this guy who makes swag for us when we go to events. 
in when I wrote the 95 new 95, uh, we said, Oh, it'd be cool if we could have little posters with these, uh, and, and pass them out to people. And so we put an order in and then this guy sends us back these scrolls that are like seven feet long. Uh, and we're like, Oh my God, what do we do with this? So we, some people, uh, younger people we know on different campuses, we, we said, Hey, on the 500th anniversary, which turns out to be Halloween, uh, we, uh, if you, if you want to put this up on your university, uh, and take a picture, you know, we'll, we'll send you some stuff. And, uh, we got, we got like 15 or so takers. It was pretty neat to get these pictures in. I've got students that I'll, I, I could send you one. It's pretty cool. Uh, places like Harvard, UNC rice and, and whatever the main statue was on campus, people put this long scroll of 95, uh, grievances against higher education. What's interesting is, did the people uh, that do that were they typically students of those institutions? Yeah, yeah, students who uh, who had either met me uh, at an event or come to San Francisco and, and met us at a social event we threw, something of that of that this sort. Wasn't even the type of person who might have applied for the Teal Fellowship. No. This person actually, like many of us, bought into the uh, the the sort of. Uh, prestige of going to a university and going through the system and getting the educational uh you know, that, yeah. that that's, that's offered um i liked some of the theses that uh that are on here i'll just read a couple quickly mm-hmm. um the first one at the top life of the united states begins with a 13 year mandatory minimum sentence k through 12 <laughs> um, <laughs> another one what is a college application but a fight to the death for prestige and I thought this other one that you highlighted here, would you rather have a Princeton diploma without a Princeton education or a Princeton education without a Princeton diploma? If you pause to answer, you must think signaling is pretty important. So good stuff. Yeah, the uh, I, some resources like in that last quote, uh, there's an economist at George Mason University, Brian Kaplan, who wrote a great book on uh, education, higher education called the case against education. Really encourage everyone to read that because it's a, a real, uh, economic analysis of these different views on what universities are doing. You know, the, the first model, that sculptor model is the human capital model where the theory is that schools are giving you skills and those skills are rewarded in the labor market. Uh, and then the alternative theory that Brian puts forward is the signaling idea that, uh, that really, you know, you're not learning skills. You're just showing off in a fight for prestige. And so you're, you're rewarded in the labor market, not for skills you have, but for qualities you possess that that whole fight allowed you to demonstrate, which is very, very uh, pessimistic, but also worrisome and, and something I think we should do, uh, you know, make some changes because I think it's true. Uh, yeah, I, 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 the theses are fun. I, I, it's interesting. They, uh, they have a life to them still every so often someone finds them and starts posting them. So it's kind of cool that, uh, it's evergreen that way. We'll get notices on Facebook or Twitter because people catch them and and start posting them in weird places. Uh, so I'm happy we, we put that together. Well, um, I just want to talk a little bit more about what you're doing at 1517 Fund. So unlike the Teal Fellowship, which is simply grants, uh, the, the 1517 Fund has uh, – it's, it's taking a little more of a for-profit uh, uh, sort of term. What, what is, tell, tell me a little bit about what you guys and your philosophy is and how everything's being run there. Yeah, so 
we just saw so many great things coming out of the Teal Fellowship. Uh, we knew the the tailwinds were on our side in terms of younger people doing things, just more and more people getting the entrepreneurial kick and wanting to take part in that adventure. Uh, so we, we, we want, and we realized we could do it. Uh, we could start making investments and see returns. Uh, whereas the fellowship, yeah, it was a grant and, and a gift. Uh, so we, we started pitching outside investors. Uh, we took meetings with people and, and pitched them the fund that would, uh, extend the mission of the fellowship and that, yeah, we're, we're sourcing talent from college campuses and, and working with people with no degrees. And, and we were able to raise $20 million on that, on that thesis, uh, from a variety of different people. Um, we started our business in 2015 and, and what we do is we are often the first, excuse me, the first investor in a company, meaning we, we typically invest $250,000 uh, in exchange, we get stock in the company. It's a it's a private company, so uh, you know only accredited investors are allowed to make these investments. But uh, but the theory is, yeah, we we in exchange for money, we get stock, and then we also help these companies start from scratch. So we're a bit like consultants in that we offer a lot of advice on product and you know all the back office stuff and and really uh, management skills uh, to help our founders grow their companies. And then, and then we wait and, and we, uh, you know, the way we make money as a fund is some time down the road when the company is, is doing well, uh, it's probably either acquired by a bigger company, someone like Apple or Amazon or whoever will acquire a company. And then our stock is, is purchased and, and we make returns or in the, in the best case scenarios, uh, you know, we, we see a company go from ideas presented at a coffee table to an IPO on wall street and then we would sell our stock. Uh, so we've been doing that for three years. Um, it's, it's amazing to see, the best part of my job is, is seeing something grow from nothing. We've got a, a company called Luminar Technologies. They make uh, sensors for driverless cars, actually uh, you know, based partly here in, in the Bay Area, in Palo Alto, but also they have a 50,000 foot, square, square foot uh, manufacturing facility in Orlando over near you. And uh, they've got 400 employees or so now, and and it's just wild to me to see to show up at that manufacturing facility. There are FedEx trucks dropping off packages. There's a receptionist. I just meeting people whose livelihoods and healthcare and all that is provided by you know, the the creativity of uh, the CEO from the beginning. And and so the fact that I got to help nurture that uh, really really inspires me. Um, it's just, it's just so wonderful to see something grow like that. And then on the flip side, we, we not, it's venture capital is extremely risky and we've made 47 investments to date and, and we know most of them aren't going to work out, uh, despite the best efforts of, of the founders and us. And, and even in those instances, what we hope is, is that, uh, you know, people learn a lot and maybe they try it again, or maybe they join someone else's team and, 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 what we hope more broadly with the fund is that we we do uh, you know inspire uh, the spirit of invention and tinkering and exploration and and to the extent that we can help you know do some culture jamming uh, to to in our country so people aren't as risk adverse and they're willing to experiment and try new things. I think we will have succeeded. Well, that's fantastic. We're going to have to. Uh 
track down this company. What was the name of it? The one in Orlando? Oh, Luminar Technologies. Luminar Technologies. We'll have to track them down. Maybe we can get them on the yeah. Agents of Innovation podcast. Oh, yeah, for and, sure. And now this Neat. makes me, uh, you know, I, I always see uh, your colleague and our friend Zach Slayback, who is uh, mm-hmm. on episode 36 back. Uh, oh, cool. He kind of kicked our 2018 off with the. Uh, uh, with with his uh, episode, but uh, I know he, I see him um, sometimes posting about some of these uh, driverless cars. I think he's fascinated with maybe maybe he yeah. has a little more insight than than we know. Uh, but yeah, Zach's been great. Uh, he, uh, he, he we knew him through Praxis, which uh, helps people start careers uh, without degrees, which is right up our alley. And um, and and so we, you know, he's been helping us create content and and get out there and meet people. So it's been great working with him. And you know, speaking of Praxis, uh, Isaac Morehouse was the very first guest on this episode. Uh, oh, is that right? Oh, great. Isaac, he's I, great. Isaac's yeah. one of those people, probably, I don't know, that are in your circles of, of wavelength thinking uh, that uh, that when I first asked him, hey, I had this idea for a podcast, he was like, do it, you know? So, <laughs> so I said, well, then you're my first guest. Uh, so anyway... Um, no, That's so great. We've had a good, uh, yeah, good, good lineup of people who have come uh, uh, recommended, you know, by uh, by other people. Uh, Small world. Some of these orbits, but yeah, no, it's um, it's good to see what you guys are doing at the fifteen seventeen fund, um, and uh, and 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 tell me now a little bit about your story too. You um, started. You went. I know you went to NYU. Um, you ended up going, uh, in, what into philosophy, and then you went on to Oxford. Uh, towards a doctorate and then you dro- you drop you dropped out i guess or mm-hmm. to, to do everything you're doing now so tell me a little bit about your own educational journey and how it led you to what you're doing yeah sure uh, people ask me how to get a job in venture capital and then if i tell my story it's like clear yeah <laughs> that's no good advice because of uh just how idiosyncratic and weird it is um so i yeah i thought i'd become a professor of philosophy i was working towards a doctorate at Oxford University, and uh, I just I, I had a crisis of faith where I was at a, for instance, I was at a grad school conference giving a talk on a paper I wrote in moral philosophy, and the room had maybe 12 people in it. I wasn't convincing anyone of anything, uh, and I had this nightmare that, oh, wow, I can't do this when I'm 55 and balding and wearing tweed coats. That's going to be really depressing. Um, just adding the 10th decimal place to someone's already existing view. So I, I, I knew I wanted to write. I decided I didn't need a PhD to become a writer and, uh, and I dropped out and, uh, moved to Boston, uh, where, you know, I, I had a girlfriend who was living there, but I, I was able to get a job, uh, with a magazine owned by MIT called technology review. And my thinking was, yeah, I can work as a journalist and cut the fat off my prose and and then I'll uh, be able to write books like like my heroes, like Tom Wolfe and uh, Hunter S. Thompson or Joan Didion, those writers from the 60s and 70s. So I wanted to write nonfiction. Um, so so that's how I, I, you know, I was in grad school and I left. I never thought I'd get uh, to where I am now. Um you know, covering science and technology for technology review was a, a bit of a baptism by fire, given my background. But but I worked hard at it and I'd cover everything from developments in quantum computing to uh, better ways to brew beer. And and it was a lot of fun. And one day I, I, I was assigned a story. There was a 
um, this guy, Max Levchin, had been part of uh, the founding team of PayPal, and my editor wanted me to interview him because it had been five years since they sold the company to, to eBay. And he had won an award from the magazine. That was it. So I was like, okay, yeah, get, do a Q&A with him. So I call up Max and... Uh, and I, and I didn't, I knew what PayPal was, but I didn't know any of the people behind it. And so I said, I, I, I asked Max, I said, is there anything you'd tell your younger self to do differently in 2002? And when I was talking to him, it was 2007. Uh, and he says, uh, yeah, you know, when we sold the PayPal to eBay, I, I took a year off and I traveled the world and lived on a beach even. And, and it was the worst year of my life. I was like, what? Who is this guy? How is that the worst year of your life? He says, uh, you know, I, I was just consuming things and all my friends were out there creating great companies. And I was like, who are your friends? And that's when I was uh, introduced to what what's known now as the PayPal Mafia, uh, which is this uh, name given to the alumni of uh, people who, who founded PayPal. And when that company was sold, uh, they went on to do other pretty extraordinary things. So Elon Musk was was one of these people. Uh, of course, now in 2007, this wasn't widely known, but uh, it was the I looked this guy up, and oh my, he's built a rocket ship company, a electric car company, a solar panel company. Uh, Reed Hoffman, another person, founded uh, LinkedIn. Uh, Steve Chen uh, created YouTube. Um, some other people did things like Yelp. A lot of the great companies of the 2000s were founded by this uh, team that had been at PayPal. And then, uh, and then I came across Peter Thiel. And I was like, wow, here's this uh, libertarian guy who's running a hedge fund. That's, that's pretty interesting. So I never thought I'd work for him, but uh, somehow came into uh, – uh, well, not somehow. So in, in, my, uh, in my study of philosophy and to go back to the LinkedIn profile, I'm really interested in treating government and governance as an industry like any other. And by that I mean uh, – you know, if we want to see improvements in governance, if we if we want innovation, truly new things, then we have to ask why some markets are innovative and, and others aren't. And and it's not just competition that drives things to get better. It's also the threat of new entry, because if you can uh, create something new that's different without the approval of anyone, uh, then then that's what, how you can be really that's how you can experiment and really be inventive. And in politics, we've seen this in the past pretty dramatically, but it's forgotten because we've run out of land to do things. But in the uh, in the 18th century, for instance, um, William Penn in England was a was a Quaker who was uh, persecuted. It was very intolerant times. Uh, I think he was thrown in jail, and and Quakers were often tortured in England uh, for their for their views. And and you know he was an aristocrat though, and and uh, through you know, colonization, which isn't a great thing, but he inherited a, uh, a large tract of land, what is now known as Pennsylvania. And because he had suffered so much at the hands of English intolerance, he was the first uh, governor in the history of the world to encode in the constitution of a, of a realm the idea of the freedom of conscience. Now, to me, that's a product innovation. Here's someone introducing something new in the market that hasn't existed before. It could not have been brought about through democratic vote. So no one in England is going to vote for this policy. In, and even over in the states or in the colonies, uh, 
people did seek their asylum and freedom, but they were very intolerant in places like uh, Massachusetts. So when Penn introduced this uh, this new product, Freedom of Conscience, into uh, the the market for governance, it was very successful. People, uh, the colonists who wanted greater freedom and in, in on the state side started immigrating into Pennsylvania, and sure enough, the other colonies started to imitate Pennsylvania. And so the idea spread. And so that's just an example of how government can change through new entry into the market and a pretty dramatic one in history. Uh, so, so I, you know, there's this quote by Winston Churchill that democracy is the worst form of gov government, but you know, better than any that have been tried in the past. Well, I think, you know, we can still improve things, but as I said, we don't have land to build on. Uh, so in 2008, uh, an acquaintance friend of mine started a nonprofit called the Seasteading Institute. And this was uh, the premise of this institute is that while the technology is not there yet, we should start thinking about what we could do to build floating cities on the ocean. You know, what if we could build land uh, and, and then people could experiment with new forms of government, not no government, but new forms, different forms, borrowing the best practices from different regions. And, uh, and so I joined Patry Friedman. He's the grandson of Milton Friedman. Uh, we launched that. I helped him. I was writing for them. I ran a blog. And, uh, and the main donor of that organization was Peter Thiel. So the, the organization was infused with some of the philosophy that I had studied. Uh, you know, for me, the, the main source on that is this guy, Robert Nozick, professor of philosophy from Harvard, who wrote a book called Anarchy, State, Utopia. Most people read the the middle section, because it's this critique of, of, uh, of liberal left-wing liberalism, socialism uh, by John Rawls, the, the, his colleague, Nozick's colleague at, at Harvard. But the last section of the book is the most exciting to me because it describes this, uh, you know, community of different communities where people are opting in and out of different, uh, different countries and nations and communities in, in, in order to find the one that suits their lives best. And, and so the Seasteading Institute animated that idea in the concrete. I, I did a lot of work for them and it was through that organization that I met Peter. And then when Peter and I sat down for an interview, we, we, we didn't talk finance. I mean, I was interviewing for a, a job at uh, his hedge fund, Clarium, but uh, we talked about philosophy for an hour. And then at the end of that hour, he asked me if I would help him teach a class on philosophy and technology at Stanford Law School. And I was like, all right, that's just so great an opportunity. I can't I can't pass that up. So, uh, yeah, really unusual uh, path uh, to and then, you know, and then there's like the fellowship and getting into 1517. So the, I, I don't know how to explain it to younger people. I just say, look, I'm, I'm like Tarzan swinging vine the vine and I'm just doing the best I can to move in a, in, in a direction. But uh, but it does seem to be motivated by the, you know, what I things I hold dear, like uh, the freedom and, and uh, the ability of people to realize their potential and the spirit of adventure. Well, that's great. Yeah, it sounds like you've had quite the adventure, and uh, you're just getting started, I think. Uh, but yeah. uh, you've had a, lot, a good range of opportunities and, and experiences, and you know, I see, I, I, I tend to just my own personal experience and what I've observed from others is I tell a lot of young people now who are maybe going to college or in college, who are thinking about what they should study and 
You know, I think it's complicated because I said, you know, a lot of people I know, including myself, the specific degree I went in to study for, I have a background mm. in liberal arts degree, I'm not doing that specific thing. But I can tell you the experiences I had during college, some in the class, but many outside the classroom, whether it was work yeah. or whether it was uh, some kind of uh, extracurricular activity I was involved with. That's Those were actually the better things that probably helped me into my uh, current career path now. So... Uh, I think, you know, um, gathering a lot of those experiences are probably better than the actual paper, like you said. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Un unfortunately, you know, I think I still think there is uh, a premise, particularly by a lot of employers, that they, you know, you need that paper, right? You need. So when it comes down to that question about pr the Princeton paper or the Princeton education, you know, mm. I don't know. I would love to have the education, if, especially if you're exposed to some top uh, professors and top scholars, but at the end of the day, that paper might actually be worth more uh, to some people. So uh, let me just shift one uh, to sort of uh, wrap this up. One of the uh, questions I've been asking probably the last 10, uh, 10 guests on my podcast um, has been a question that I that I got from actually uh, Senator Ben Sass. I was reading his book earlier this year called The Vanishing American Adult. You know, he's mm. a senator, but the book is mostly about culture, not politics. And one of the questions he said he likes to ask um, fellow Americans, new people that he meets, to learn a little bit more about them is, what is their first job? So I wanted to ask you, what was your first job? And if you had anything you might have learned or taken away from it or carry with you today, feel free to share that too. But curious to hear, hear what your first job was. Uh, it wasn't really a job. I was a paper boy for <laughs> the local paper. Uh, so that so, so wait so wait 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 the paper yeah. boy wants to burn the paper. <laughs> this is great. There you go. <laughs> yeah, that was the first way I made money. Did you not like but, this job because like you decided you know I gotta get rid of this paper. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. I I what I actually I hated uh, I hated trying I had to collect the subscription dues from people and they were never good about. <laughs> Being on time, that, that was always a pain. Uh, yeah, not really a full-time job. I guess my first full-time job was one summer I in, in high school. I, I worked for the town of Greenwich, and it was this weird job where some days I was a trash collector, uh, and then other days I was doing things like painting foul ball lines on, on the softball fields. And it was such a, you know, it was... What, what, what was the particular job? I forget what the title was. It was I, I think it was just like a job with the Parks and Rec Department. But because of the town structure, I was also like garbage man and and, uh, and also yeah, garbage? yeah, yeah. And so I just I I did go around town collecting trash at the parks and uh, dumping it in the back. There are a couple things that were funny about that to me. One was uh, the town had uh, had set up. You know, they'd have a garbage can and then a recycling can. And then when we went around to collect this stuff, we'd just throw it into the same bin because it was, a, you know, at least the guy I was working with, the older man um, who was a character, he, he just told me that it was all sorted out down at the plant anyway. So, we, so there was all this pretense of like, oh, we're helping the environment. And I, and I guess, you know, I trust him that it was the case, but it didn't matter that they were in two different two different cans. Um, this guy was so funny too. He was like an old, uh, he's like an old sailor kind of guy, he would like take his dentures out to, 
to dip when it was raining and we'd sit in his truck. I'd have a book with me. Sometimes I read a lot of poetry. I, I was reading his book and he just looks over at me. He's like, what the hell are you reading for? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, so I, what did I learn from that? Um, I don't know. You know, it was, it was, it was good to have, uh, some money to spend and, uh, and, and yet realize how hard it was to, to earn so little, uh, doing, doing that work. I think it, it added some discipline into my life, but it also just, it also showed me some, some of the bad practices that, uh, that bureaucracies and, and other large organizations are susceptible to where like, I don't know, the, uh, these guys would use the town equipment to like work on their houses or like get rid of things, you know, they'd use public publicly owned things for private <laughs> interest or they would they would gain gain the system to uh get more money whether through uh yeah all all the sorts of things that you know unions and, and large organizations uh fight over so i don't know kind of interesting experience um and then and then i uh when i when i in college i worked as a barista server in grad school, I did a little of that too. And it wasn't until I started getting doing like internships, I started writing for like local paper, the one I, not the one I delivered for smaller one. And then started as I, as I, uh, progressed, I started working at places like the Atlantic monthly, which was pretty cool. But, but yeah, I, I don't know. I, I kind of think, I think having a job as a server actually is a great experience. Everyone should have at some point because it's hard work and you, and and interacting with other humans is just so, so interesting where you, you know, you meet some jerks or you meet great people and, and you never know what to expect. And those are hard days. And I, and I think it's a good experience for people to, uh, um, to have that kind of interaction. Cause I think it, it helps down the road and in, in all sorts of things like sales or just <laughs> managing people. Yeah, no, for sure. I think all of that, uh, yeah, you have to deal with people, from all walks of life and, uh, and learn about them and get to learn how to experience, uh, interacting with them. So, uh, which is probably unique with a lot of, you know, a lot of things are going uh, online these days and there's, there's a less sort of, uh, face-to-face communication, uh, in a lot of jobs and a lot yeah. of experiences that people are having. So probably getting out there and doing something like waiting tables <laughs> or, uh, would be, uh, would be uh, some good experience. Well, Michael, we uh, want to thank you for being on the agents of innovation podcast. Um, for those that want to learn a little bit more about you and the 1517 Fund, I know you, they can go to 1517fund.com. Is, uh, yep. is there anything else you'd like to leave us with? Any parting thoughts? Only that uh, anyone who's listening, even if you don't fit our thesis, we're always interested in meeting people and, and maybe uh, we can help you out in some way, not not through investment, but uh, we we're, we love people who are starting out and and want to help them as as much as possible with a pay it forward attitude. So don't hesitate to email us; always happy to get those. Great. Well, thank you again, Michael, for being on the Agents of Innovation podcast. Thanks for having me. Summer smile, the road ahead, the past I left behind me. Same parts, troubled men and mothers, child, a highway, garden, grown mighty wild. There's just one place that seems to recognize me. I wanna go 
so may I die beneath this watercolor sky and forever roam my Gulf Coast home. Pocket full of promises and hope and no way to win a good woman's hand. She made it clean. She could not stand beside me. So I packed up my pride and went on the lamb Too little sense and no plan Took a good long while for me to try and find me Now I wanna go to my Gulf Coast home Where the pines and palms together sing the songs my people wrote As I was born so may I die beneath this watercolor sky and 